step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Before you listen to this podcast, be aware this show often uses very naughty language. If you don't like that, you shouldn't listen. Send your complaints to I am a whiny baby with no sense of humour at nightstory.com or stop by the studio. I'll take you for a ride to a story of my choosing. Welcome to episode 518 of the Ninth Story Podcast. I'm Jeanette Andromeda. And I'm Immortal Alexander. And today we're speaking with author Helen Grant about her novel, Silent Saturday. First off, we'll be performing a short scene from her book. Then we'll have a brief word from our sponsor. And then we'll be right back for the interview. An excerpt from Silent Saturday by Helen Grant. Towards the end of January, the temperature rose. The snow gave way to sleet and then to rain. The ice on the lake in the park began to melt. It was still unpleasant to walk in the park, wet and dirty underfoot and cheerless overhead. With the bare and wet black branches of the trees jutting into dreary gray skies, it required a certain hardiness to root oneself out of bed on a Sunday morning to walk the dog. That was probably the only reason the discovery didn't make more of a stir at the time. It was early and there was hardly anyone in the park. In the southwest corner, near the St. Hubertuskapel, there was only a local man, John Bergartz, who was walking a dog, or more specifically, his wife's dog. John was in a filthy mood because the weather was wet and cold and he hated the dog anyway. It was a stupid thing, small and yappy and willful. The only thing that prevented him from planting a stout shoe on the dog's backside and punting it into the lake was the fear of what his wife would say and do. All the same, he entertained pleasant thoughts of doing just that as he trudged after the loathsome animal. He could see that the white hair of its belly and legs was already brown with mud. That meant brushing out the car after he'd taken the dog back home and bathing the bloody thing or resisting temptation to hold it under water until bubbles and life itself burst forth from it. Now he saw with annoyance that the dog had started down the bank that led to the pond. It was barking, or rather it was making the shrill and irritating noise that passed for barking, and forcing its way under the green remains of the fallen branches of the water. With the thaw, the wet earth had turned to mud. The dog would be even more filthy than usual. John called and whistled, but with a certain sense of futility. The dog did whatever it wanted, regardless of the ammonitions of its owners. Klutzak, said John disgustingly to the dog. Then he went to follow it. The bank was, he saw to his dismay, steeper and muddier than he had expected. If he went down it himself, he would end up just as filthy as the dog, even assuming he managed to keep his footing. He called the dog again. Mirko! Mirko! John raised his voice, but the dog still didn't respond. Even when he shouted, 
Kruzak at it. It was at the water's edge, barking its hairy little head off and ignoring him completely. John opened his mouth to curse it again, and then he saw what the dog was barking at. For a moment, he tried to tell himself that it was something innocent. A carrier bag that had blown into the water. Discarded piece of clothing. But even as he struggled down the bank, slipping and sliding, mud coating his trousers, he knew that it wasn't. As he went down, he tried to fumble his mobile phone out of his pocket, intending to call the police, an ambulance, his wife. But he stumbled over a mossy branch, and the phone flew out of his hand and landed in the pond with a faint splash. The bottom of the bank was so slippery that he was unable to avoid putting one foot in the water. It was freezing, and in his mind's eye, it was contaminated too. The solution in which a dead thing was suspended like an exhibit in a medieval museum. He made a strangled sound and launched himself back onto the bank. He looked for his phone, but it had vanished in the leaden water. Then he looked at the body, and he knew that it was down to him. He had to do something. He was as sure of that as he was of anything. As sure as he was that his marriage and his life since had been a complete mistake, that he was going to tell Celine it was the dog or him when he finally got home. I'm going to have to turn the body over. I have to be 100% certain that whoever it is is really dead. He didn't think there was the remotest chance of life in that motionless and submerged form. But he had a duty to find out before he went off for another 15 minutes to fetch the police in person. He couldn't leave someone to drown if there was the faintest hope of resuscitation. So he took his courage in both hands and grasped the sodden clothing, which moved in the water around the silent form, like the gently weaving seaweed on a reef. He pulled feeling the weight of the water trying to suck the body back down out of his grasp. And then he braced himself and heaved, and the body turned over. John looked at the dead gray face and screamed. Uh, so for all you out there, uh, today we have author Helen Grant on with us. Welcome, Helen. Hello. Hello, <laughs> and thank you. So Helen, where, where are you calling from today? Um, from Perthshire in Scotland, which is very green and rainy at the moment. That's fabulous. I love um, it. But I was originally born in London, so but but I now live in Scotland permanently. And you've travelled a lot, right? Like, I just reading some of your bios and things like that. You were in London and then went to Germany for a while, and then was it just Germany to Scotland, or was there more in between? No, we've been around all over the place, really. Nice. We lived in Spain for about half a year Ooh. in Barcelona. Then we came back to Britain briefly, um, and then we went to Germany for seven years. We initially went there for two years, but we liked it so much that we stayed more or less until they threw us out. <laughs> um, then we went to Flanders, the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium, for three years. Um, and now we're back in Scotland, but in between I've done quite a bit of traveling. I've visited about 30 countries. Wow. So yeah, I've got a well-worn passport. That's awesome. <laughs> in the States, the best we can do uh, a lot of the time is just traveling from state to state because there's so much space in between. <laughs> but even <laughs> that. See, I guess. I've been to the States once. I went uh, on a business trip to LA. That was a very weird place. I have not been to LA. I am very curious to really experience it myself. I bet it's mm. weird. <laughs> Weren't you born in California, though? Well, I was born in California, but not L.A. All right. Well, you're a baby. You uh, yeah. don't remember it. <laughs> I traveled all. a lot as a child and ha have not traveled as much as I would like as an adult. <laughs> yeah, Jeanette's family is a, uh, a military family, so she's been in a, a bunch of different places. Oh, okay. And well, we moved around with my husband's job. Oh, um, nice. But yeah, yeah. So that was so that was good. Um, but. Um, uh, it, it was kind of, I suppose that's one of the reasons why I started writing, because there's not a lot of other things you can do if you're kind of the spouse that's moving around with somebody. Um, yeah. There's not enough continuity for me to, to go back into a nine to five. And besides, I had two small kids. 
um, and German kindergarten and school ends at lunchtime. So it's actually quite difficult to do kind of a respectable job of work. So I started writing books instead. That works. <laughs> so you yeah, were just totally like squishing works. it in between while they were at school? Um, well, what happened really was, I suppose, I'd wanted to write for a long time and other things got in the way, um, traveling, working, and then I had two kids. And so by the time that second one went to kindergarten, which would have been nine, 2003, I was kind of like ready to erupt with things that I wanted to write down. So um, the first day that I delivered them both there, I went home, powered up our ancient PC and started writing. And I've basically been doing that ever since. That's so. fantastic. <laughs> it certainly concentrates the mind if you only have three hours every day, five days a week. It definitely. So. <laughs> you make the most of it. Yeah, you do. Uh, for those who are unaware, can you tell the audience a little about your book, Silent Saturday, and the trilogy that is a part of? Yeah, um, like a lot of my other work, it was inspired by somewhere that we lived. And when we moved to Belgium, um, we basically moved on a local contract. So we were living in kind of normal circumstances like any other person living in Belgium. But um, because I was an expat, I got to know some other, other expats living there. And uh, I think I went to a book group or something or other. And I was kind of stunned at the fact that people who are relatively ordinary people like, like you and me were living in these really amazing expat houses. I mean, mm. the people over the road from us had a swimming pool in the garden and all this kind of stuff, which, yeah, which I could never dream of, really. Um, and one of the things that struck me about this is that when you got to the long summer holidays or to Christmas, everybody went back home, wherever home was, to visit their folks. And these amazing places were empty. And so I started thinking, you know, what could be happening in these places when nobody was there? Hmm. You know, how great would it be to go into one of these places and, you know, use the home cinema or the swimming pool or the sauna? <laughs> and that's kind of where the story of Silent Saturday came from, because um, it's about um, a group of people who call themselves the cuckooken, which is a Dutch word for cuckoos, you know, the bird that lives in another bird's nest. Mm -hmm. And they go into people's houses um, when the occupants are not there. Sometimes it's deserted houses, but also sometimes it's this very kind of extravagant expat villas and just enjoy the place for a bit. They don't damage anything. They don't steal anything. And they kind of try and do one little act of maintenance while they're there in order to kind of say thank you. And then they leave without hopefully leaving any sign that they were there. And uh, the heroine of the story, Vila, gets involved in this. And as the story goes on, it gradually becomes apparent that um, somebody or something is stalking the people that are doing this. And obviously you're in a very awkward position then because you can't very well go to the police and say, you know, help. I think somebody's picking us all off if you're doing something illegal to begin mm -hmm. with. So that's kind of, that's kind of the setup. And what is the word expat? We're unfamiliar with that. Oh, um, expatriate. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's kind of it's kind of the word that people tend to use um, uh, to refer to. Um, I suppose kind of. Yeah, I mean, Brits abroad call themselves that quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I suppose. I say that I tended to think of myself as, a, as an economic migrant, really, because we'd gone there for the jobs. Um, but I mean, expat does have a bit of. Um, in English, English, it has kind of the overtones of people kind of having gin on the terrace as the sun goes down type of thing. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> I like that image, gin on the terrace as the sun goes down. <laughs> I think that sums up a lot. Um, I, and, and, gin, I did... and gin is one of the only safe alcohols Jeanette can have because of her allergies. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I could be an expat based entirely on that <laughs> one aspect. Um, but I... It was interesting just like hearing just that little definition of what that is, because even though we didn't know what that term meant, you could kind of, through reading Silent Saturday, understand what that meant. Like in American terms, it would be kind of, oh, I don't know, someone who, an actor's house or something like extravagant, some politician's house. But in your case, it's in another country rather than in the country that they're from. So it made sense to me, but I, I like the uh, description. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Well, it's, it was quite a tempting thought, really, some of these houses, just just how amazing they are. And while I was doing the research for, for this, I mean, uh, although 
although some of the buildings in the three books in the trilogy are real ones, obviously when I was writing about individual expat houses, I didn't want to make that the house of, of, of somebody I knew. <laughs> I thought that might be pushing a bit, it a bit. I didn't want to offend anybody. Mm -hmm. But I spent quite a lot of time looking at the, um, the expat real estate sites. Oh, nice. So the type of facilities that you've got are genuinely inspired by the real sort of properties that you can rent there. So they're pretty amazing. Oh, my gosh. I now can imagine what it's like, and now I need to go like search online to see what it actually looks like because it's awesome. <laughs> well, there, was, there was one website which the drop down box actually allowed you to look for, I think it was uh, castles and palaces or something, as well as, wow. <laughs> as, well as just ordinary houses. Amazing. So, yeah. So it's a pretty amazing lifestyle. I, I, I would mean, say so. <laughs> to be fair, my kind of naughty um, hero and heroine who are breaking into these places are not stealing things from the mm -hmm. people. So they're not kind of being too disrespectful. But at the same time, because they don't have that kind of lifestyle, it feels slightly unreal to them. Mm -hmm. You know, if they were breaking into the house of somebody kind of ordinary like themselves, I think they'd probably feel more guilty. Probably. <laughs> so um, in the first scene of book one, Silent Saturday, there was this concept of Silent Saturday specifically, which is brand new to me. I'd never heard this story before, but um, can you explain a little bit more about that and that holiday specifically? Yeah, um, I'd never heard of this at all before we got to Belgium, um, but I went to Dutch classes because um, unlike Germany, when we lived there, I spoke German already because I've done German at school. But um, when we got to Flanders, I didn't speak a word of Dutch. So the first thing I did was sign up for Dutch classes. And we had this very nice um, Flemish teacher um, called Anne, who tried to, as well as teaching us the language, to, to kind of mix in a little bit of local culture. And she told us um, this story about Silent Saturday, which I think is called Stille Zadadag um, in Dutch. And the idea is that uh, on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, none of the church bells ring in Flanders. And I think this is probably true of other parts of Europe as well. And I guess probably, you know, there's some respectable theological reason for this, like it's supposed to be it's supposed to be the day when uh, between Jesus's crucifixion and the resurrection. So it's kind of a day of mourning. So I mm -hmm. think that that was probably why. But this is a bit gruesome for little kids. So instead, they tell them that the bells have flown away to Rome to collect all their Easter eggs from the Pope. <laughs> and they're going to fly back <laughs> full of Easter eggs. And I've been wondering how they did this. I think they must fly upside down. Otherwise, all the I eggs would so. fly. Exactly. <laughs> Plus, they'd make a huge racket. <laughs> Unlike how they served the blizzard to us at the uh, Dairy Queen. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I, just know, I didn't realize that before, that now when you go to a Dairy Queen in the state, United States, uh, the you know, we get the ice cream and all that, that they, if they give you the, your blizzard ice cream treat, they have to give it to you upside down as some sort of kind of, I don't know. Weird, I don't know. Weird, gravity weird. defying. Yeah. Thing. Like, so hey, maybe. Yeah. Just, maybe like, just to freak you out the before Easter they give it to you. actually like yeah. adhere to the inside of the bells, just like, <laughs> like ice cream. <laughs> like the ice cream does. Yeah. It's the melted <laughs> chocolate. It's what it is. Yeah. So I don't know what it is, but. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this story really kind of interested me because I thought, well, you know, if I'd grown up and I'd heard this, I would not be able to resist going to the bell tower on that day and having oh, yeah. a look and seeing whether the bells had really gone. I mean, you'd have to, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in the first scene, Vila, who at this point is is young, she's only about seven years old, and her friend Chris go up into the bell tower. They've pinched the key because Chris's mother, I think, is cleaning in the church. So they've pinched the key and they go up into the bell tower and they're really disgusted to see that the bell is still there. So the grown-ups have been telling them lies. Mm -hmm. um, but while they're up there, they think, well, you know, we might as well look out of the window and spy on the rest of the village. And when they look out of the window, they see something really awful happening. And it's kind of the, the repercussions of that event and the things that they see that kind of resound through the whole of the trilogy. So... Yeah, so that happens on Silent Saturday. And uh, in case the listeners haven't read Silent Saturday, the whole trilogy yet, pause, go buy them, go read them, come back. I'm borrowing that well, phrase we're not, from... we're not going <laughs> to... I'm just saying. We're not going to spoil anything. We're not going to And we've only read the first book ourselves. It's true. And we're going to definitely However, be feverishly reading the rest. They're amazing. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if anyone hasn't read them, read them. <laughs> Uh, I it was it was really nice, Helen, like reading that book in particular, because I growing up, 
was always hunting for these kind of books where there was this stronger female character and to read one that was like, oh, past me would have loved this because future me <laughs> loves this right now. <laughs> but I just I just needed to say that I adored it and I'm glad that you're writing these kind of characters. Well, I'm very pleased with Vila because she is very strong. And I mean, I'm, I'm trying very carefully. I'm tiptoeing here along without kind of giving any spoilers. <laughs> but there is um, one scene in that book in which she does something really brave. She basically goes back into a dangerous situation to save somebody that she cares about. And I actually really like doing that. I think that she and the hero, Chris, they, they suit each other very well mm -hmm. because there's a good balance of power. You know, it's not always kind of him leading and him rescuing. Sometimes she does the rescuing, too. And that was really important to me. And I didn't kind of write this particularly as any kind of feminist statement or anything. Mm -hmm. It's just because that's what I like. You know, I don't mm -hmm. see why she shouldn't be like that. Um, it's the kind of adventure I would love to have. And she's, out of all the heroines that I've written, she's the one that I'd like to be. I'd like to be her. I'd like to have her life. I'd like to have the danger. <laughs> I think that's why um, people that's are kind of... I think that's why people are kind of complaining about the uh, the new Mummy movie with Tom Cruise right now is that the uh, female archaeologist that is the female lead along with Tom Cruise really does nothing in the film. Right. And, and it's really such an old <laughs> yeah. trope. It's such an old way of making film that it really doesn't make sense in this modern era to have female characters that literally have no purpose other than exposition. Yeah, 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 I agree with that. And yeah I suppose that's partly what I mean by saying I don't think I was making a feminist statement because right. I don't want it to be a statement I want it to be taken for granted yeah. that Vila do the things that she does there's nothing kind of remarkable about it I mean I think that if I was in her situation what I like to think that I would do the same <laughs> things that she does and that I would be as brave I hope um, so yeah you know I would like that to be the baseline really and it feels natural though it doesn't it does. feel forced like I think if you were to swap Chris and Vila, their genders or their their roles in the story, it wouldn't feel any different. That much different. Yeah. Like it wouldn't really change who they are at their core. It's because they're just being true to themselves and it, it felt so natural. It felt so human, their interactions throughout this entire story. And uh it was a genuine pleasure to read them on the page. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And we actually uh, made a horror web series together, my wife and I, uh, a while ago. And when we were casting the, one of the episodes, we were just going through it. Originally, we had the lead in the first episode be a male character. And then just through the audition tapes that we got, uh, we just happened to see a person that embodied that character better, that happened to be a woman. And it wasn't any conscious thought. It was just like, this person seems like she'd be a better fit uh, for that character. And that just happened. To, it just felt natural how it kind of came about. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> um, so what what research, Helen, have you done to prepare for uh, the, the Forbidden Spaces trilogy other than, um, you know, the uh, fact that you had gone to school and kind of found out about Saturday on Saturdays and thought it was interesting to go into these, you know, rich people's houses? Other than that, what <laughs> other what other research have you done for the trilogy? Well, um, a massive, massive, massive amount, except that to a certain extent, it never really feels like research mm -hmm. because I write about the things that I like to write about and I am kind of following the things that I would find fun myself. So um, I'm never going to write about anything that, that I wouldn't find exciting. So most of the locations are places that I really went to. So I've been up the bell towers including um at the beginning of demons of ghent which is the second book there's a very very tall bell tower it's nearly 90 <laughs> meters high oh my gosh. Um, and um i couldn't go up that one but there's one opposite it which i went up and i am so frightened of heights <laughs> i actually i crawled around the top of this on my hands and knees and i had to take photographs for the research so i kind of held the camera over the edge and just like pressed the button because i couldn't press <laughs> So I went up sort of to the high level for that. I've been down into the Brussels sewers, which appear in um, the final book, Urban Legends. There's also in Urban Legends, there's um, a derelict factory. And I went around one of those as well with some real urban explorers um, who do quite a lot of that stuff. They took me around. And that, that was really amazing because this place was scheduled for demolition. Oh, wow. And um, so there was bulldozers everywhere. And we went on a Sunday um, and there was a bit of chain link fence was down. So we kind of went through there and there's all these shadowy people kind of going in and out, kind of taking a last look before the place is gone. And um, because they'd started demolishing of it 
demolishing it, the side of the building was off. So it was like an enormous doll's house. You could look in and see all these different floors and the offices with the posters still on the walls and stuff like that. And that was that was a really amazing experience. So I actually, the, the places in the book, uh, on, in, the, in all three of the books, are nearly all places that I've actually been. Um, I have been into quite a few bell towers as well doing the research, <laughs> some that I was allowed to go in and some that I probably wasn't supposed to. Um, and for Ghent, which is in the middle book, um, I did a huge amount of research. I went there twice, um, once for about a week. Um, basically the first time I went to Ghent ever was just on a day trip and I fell in love with the place and I thought right I want to set a book here and I knew this was kind of a bit mad because unlike the other places I didn't have any history with this place I just mm -hmm. turned up I thought this is great so I had to do a shed load of research for it and um, I got in touch with friends of friends who said that they'd show me round so they said they'd meet me um at Ghent on I think on the second or third day so I'd spent the first two days going around all of these places and because in Demons of Ghent it's mostly set on the rooftops I'd been up this tall tower um, I'd been up the Gravenstein Castle uh, which is also very high and various kind of other places like that and because of my fear of heights I was really thinking well you know I'm, I'm done now I'm really looking forward to meeting these friends and, and we're just going to you know drive around the city and they're going to explain to me what the different areas are so they met me and they said, I'll come back to our place for um, for a cup of coffee first. And I went and would you believe it? They were on the top floor of this really high building and the whole of the side of their apartment was glass. So, <laughs> and they kept going out on the balcony and saying, come out here. The view is wonderful. And I was sort of sitting and sort of cringing and saying, no, just don't make me go out there. I can't do this again. <laughs> I know they have like oh, these. So I, I, I think it's in this in the United States. They have this thing where they, uh, it's like a big glass. Actually, no, it's not even glass. I think it's just there's like no floor at all, and there's like a table, and they hoist uh -huh. you up with a, with a crane. They just hoist you up with a crane, and you just have dinner, hanging out in the up in the air. You know, like as tall as a building. No, thank you. Oh, you're like strapped in and seat belted in, <laughs> but you're just sitting there having dinner up in the air for no reason. I don't know. <laughs> No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not doing that. <laughs> yeah, so so that was, you know, really the rest of the day after that is a bit of a blur because I was kind of in a state of gibbering shock after that. But yeah, anyway, they took me all over the city. Um, and afterwards, when we got home, I did loads of research. I spent a lot of time on Google Street View nice. because... Um, I like to be really, really kind of accurate about every detail as much as I possibly can. So there's things like there was a scene where somebody makes an attempt to push somebody under a tram. So I wanted to look at the tram stop and see, is there a step there or is everybody standing at ground level? Are they mm -hmm. pushing them across or down? All this sort of thing, you know, could do by zooming in. And I spent hours and hours and hours doing that because I really wanted it to be right. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and I spoke to my Flemish friends and got them to tell me a couple of phrases in the local Ghent dialect as well so that I could put those in. So, yeah, I tried to be really, really meticulous. I could Wanted I could really tell with your world building and with, like, feeling so transported there. Um, in particular, I love that you had that blend of culture and language from, like, Flemish and French and... There was that that element of like the English lady in one scene <laughs> where there's a big uh, to do, and um, was a lot of that was that specifically drawn from like your experience living in those places where you saw that everything blending together. Yeah, very much so because um, I mean we ourselves used four languages on a daily basis there, and that is pretty much normal everybody speaks at least two most people speak three they'll um the people in the dutch speaking part of the country obviously speak dutch they usually speak french even if they don't always like to mm -hmm. and they speak english as well um and we because we'd lived in germany before we had our kids in a german speaking school because you can't keep you know starting with a new language while they're doing their education so when we took them to school and when they did the homework that was all german we were speaking english at home Dutch in the village where we lived and if we went into Brussels or if I rang our insurance agent or anything like that it was French so we were using these four languages on a day-to-day -day basis and people just swap in and out of them all the time 
And when we met somebody, if, if I didn't know whether they were Dutch or French speaking, I'd just say bonjour, goeie dag, and see which one they replied to. <laughs> and it's just like that the, you know, the whole time. Yeah, so I think that is an accurate representation of what it's like. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I found that really kind of, I don't know, really stimulating. I actually liked it, you know, and I think yeah. that. For me, living abroad, particularly when the kids were small, was was a great way of kind of keeping my brain alive, really, mm -hmm. because we were always having these kind of challenges of expressing yourself in, you, in one language. And did you learn all of those languages from those different regions, or you just learned some of the curse words for the book? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the curse words I kind of learned specially. <laughs> I think that's we what do. we all learn first. Yeah. <laughs> what not to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh sorry we just wanted to ask because there were a lot of curse words in uh in your, or what i assume are curse words very I don't... <laughs> very uh creative curse words well were, were a lot of them um were those dutch ones that were in the book yeah if it was a klutzak yeah that's oh, okay that's, uh, uh, uh am i allowed to say rude words on here? oh, yeah, oh yeah, go yeah go for it okay <laughs> well that's just like calling somebody an asshole or something or it's nice. not too bad <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, context. to be honest, I thought that using, I mean, obviously the characters, mostly uh, their dialogue is rendered in English because mm -hmm. they're, they're English books, but I've kind of peppered them with kind of little words here or there. And, and having the curse words in their kind of home language is not a bad wheeze because <laughs> um, aside from anything else, as well as an adult readership, I have a teen readership for this. And, you know, kind of sometimes parents will get a bit aerated if they see that, that they're teenagers or whatever reading something it's peppered with f-bombs oh, right <laughs> and obviously if they look over the shoulder and it says klutzak they're going to think oh sweet you know they're picking up foreign vocabularies <laughs> <laughs> you're sneaky <laughs> well, I did have, when my first book came out which has kind of a mix of um you know there's the occasional kind of uh british swear word in it but mm -hmm. quite a lot of german ones um somebody actually wrote to me and this was quite unusual but said that before she gave my book to her granddaughter she'd had to go through it with a magic marker and kind of strike all the english curse words out. Oh. <laughs> yeah so i suppose there's some people that don't like those so kind of oh, having them go. in the, in their kind of home language actually covers that quite nicely that's nice <laughs> I mean, I'm. I, that does say something that she's like, I don't like these words, but the book is good enough. I'm going to take the time to cross out everything bad. It's difficult, really, because I think, you know, most of my heroines and, and heroes, they're doing things like fighting serial yeah. killers. You're not going to kind of fight somebody off who's attacking you with a crossbow or a bread knife and say, oh, bother. Oh, right. Or kind of, oh, see me, are you? So, so, yeah, naturally, sometimes they say these things. I, I think it makes sense. Do you do anything else in particular to get into your characters' heads? Um, well, I suppose I tend to think of it as being a bit like, I don't know, like method acting, that you do really sort of try and think yourself into the way that the person feels. So if I'm writing about a particular location, I like to go there and... I like to touch things like I like to go into the big cathedral in Ghent where some of the scenes are set and actually kind of touch the masonry and touch the walls and look at things and kind of see what it smells like and just kind of imagine that I'm the heroine for those few moments. Um, sounds a bit daft really and some mm -hmm. of my friends laugh at me because they've been on visits to these places and they can see me going around kind of stroking the masonry and they think, oh, this is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> But it does kind of help me to get in touch with um, with the place and, yeah, with the atmosphere of it as well. Um, and just often when I'm working on a book, the characters become vividly real to me. So um, there is one scene in one of the books, and again, trying to avoid spoilers, but mm -hmm. where Chris is injured. And um, I got to the beginning of this scene just before Christmas, and then I had family coming for Christmas, so I had to stop working for about 10 days. And I felt so bad about oh. leaving him kind of injured whilst I was kind of having fun for 10 days that I kind of opened up the manuscript and I just typed in, and um, Chris goes to sleep and has no pain at all. Oh. And then, again. And then when I booted it up again in the new year, I just erased that line and carried on <laughs> nuts but I just I, I felt really bad about it just kind of leaving somebody like that <laughs> I can so, imagine <laughs> yeah the crit is a very a very very real to me 
Chris gets a Powerpuff uh, Band-Aid and they kiss on a boo-boo. <laughs> it's totally fine. Um, I, I, I like knowing that, that there was that pause at that exact moment in the story because, um, avoiding spoilers, the other character who uh, rushes in later, uh, it's it. you can feel that intensity from what obviously you were feeling from having mm-hmm. him be left in that position for so long. <laughs> Oh my god, what's happened? Yeah. Mm. Oh, I love it. <laughs> you were we were right there in her head. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because the um the um the old castle which features quite strongly in that book is one place that I didn't manage to get inside, but oh. um I've been past it a lot of times on the bus and that's why it features in the story because I was so intrigued by it. Um but they do have um a website of their own and you can kind of zoom in on all the different rooms, so I spent hours looking at that as nice. well. Yeah. What was the uh, most challenging aspect of writing Silent Saturday? Um, hmm. That's a really difficult question. I suppose maybe, you know, I can't think of much that was that challenging because I really enjoyed writing that book and the other two. In fact, mm-hmm. I think I had more fun with them than anything else I've ever written because <laughs> I so much wanted to do the things that they were doing. I suppose the only thing that was slightly kind of more tricky was that when I originally had the idea for that book, I saw it as a standalone book. And the publisher that I was working with at the time said, well, you know, everything because this is, I don't know, three, four years ago or whatever, everything is about series and trilogies and stuff now. So, you know, do you think you could expand this into more than one book? And so I did. Uh, and I think that the end result is that they all kind of interlock quite nicely. But that did mean that I had quite a bit of extra work there thinking, mm. well, you know, at what point do I stop giving stuff away in this one? How do I make it a rounded story when I know that it's going to go on to two more volumes? And that was kind of a big balancing act, really, because one of the things that I really hate if I read a series or a trilogy is the sense that it's just one story arc that's been chopped into three. Mm-hmm. And I really hate that. I wanted there to be kind of a sense of closure and satisfaction, even if not everything is tied up at the end of book one and book two. I wanted there to be kind of a reasonably satisfying ending to each one. And that was maybe the hardest thing to manage. I think, at least with book one, which I have read, um, you did that really successfully. Book one really felt like a solid story arc, and it genuinely surprised me. I knew there were other books in the series, but where it ended, I was just like, wait, no, now I need to go buy the other one. (laughs) Like, enough was tied up where I felt very satisfied by the story, but you just left me with that last, like... (gasps) But then... <laughs> well, there's one or two questions at the end of that. And yeah. a few readers have sort of kind of um, flagged this up or whatever in reviews or, or contacted me or whatever and said, you know, how could you leave this or that question? But I mean, there's still <laughs> two more books to come. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's still a little bit of time to answer those. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was fantastic. It's like, I love when a book... It, it's pretty rare, actually, when I when I find a story that does exactly that. It's like... This feels very satisfying, yet, oh my God, what's next? <laughs> Best yeah, well, cliffhanger. Hopefully you can kind of tell that I had fun with these books. Definitely. And um, since, um, since I wrote them, I still have a bit got the bug for urban exploration. I mean, I don't go into breaking, go, go, go breaking into anywhere like Chris and Verla do. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I'm a respectable mum. I'd probably get in terrible trouble if I did that. Oh, yeah. But um, I do still like to explore places. So now that we live in Scotland, I quite often look out um, old country houses, derelict ones, and go and look around those, and that's great fun. Nice. And I often think to myself, you know, Vila would really love this. <laughs> so, <laughs> she's still with me to a certain extent. I can see that. And and uh, <laughs> and the fact that she gets you on top of roofs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one area in which we probably differ is that I just have not got her head for heights. <laughs> and I have done some rock climbing in the past. Um, and my husband and son still do it. Um, but it just scares the hell out of me. <laughs> so some of the scenes, particularly in Demons of Ghent, there's one or two really kind of hairy ones. And the vertigo in that is all mine. <laughs> so I uh, checked out the bird watching site from your book, Silent Saturday, and it was amused that it redirected right to your website. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> Tell us about that thought process. That's well, I, I thought to myself that, I, I mean, I always base these things on what I would do, I suppose. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, if I were to read in a book that there was a website called this and it would lead me to this mysterious website, then I would just try entering it into Google mm-hmm. just to see what happens. So I thought, well, it would be kind of fun to buy the domain name and do that so that it would route people back to my <laughs> website. So I'm very sorry if anybody was kind of hoping to find details of the next cook and meet instead. But <laughs> Even if like a one page would have been fun, you know, <laughs> with, yeah. with, a, with a redirect at the bottom, like like you click on this cuckoo for more information, then it goes yeah. to Helen Grant. That would have been fun. <laughs> yeah, that's the thought. I think that's amazing anyway. It's so cheeky. <laughs> oh, yeah. About your urban explor- exploration, which I find fascinating. I love wandering around old decaying buildings as well. But um, out of the ones you've been to recently, not necessarily the ones for Silent Saturday, which did you find the most inspiring, like which made like the most impact on you? Oh, I would have to say probably Dunmore Park House. Um, it's a Gothic revival mansion built about 1820 that's sitting um, in the middle of Stirlingshire. Um, it's near a building that is much more famous called the Dunmore Pineapple, which mm-hmm. is um, basically a building with an enormous great stone pineapple on the top. <laughs> it was built in the 1700s where, you know, instead of having the latest iPhone, the thing to have was a pineapple because um, they were so difficult to get. Mm-hmm. So this guy um, was so rich that he built kind of a greenhouse in there to build, to, to grow pineapples oh, and wow. an enormous great stone pineapple on the top. Uh-huh. So you know, a lot of people go to see that, but don't necessarily realize that there are other kind of ruined buildings on the estate, which aren't sort of kind of open to the public. I guess if you go and look at them, it's at your own risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is a place called the Elphinstone Tower, which is the remains of a Scottish tower house that's like a little castle. And in the basement of that is the old Murray Mausoleum. And it did have people buried in it up until the 1990s. And then Ooh. vandals got in and threw the coffins around and stuff. So oh. um, they moved the bodies to um, to Blair Athol Castle for safe reinterment. But you can still look in the mausoleum. I mean, it's not something that I wholeheartedly recommend people to do because the castle is crumbling. So, yeah. you know, I wouldn't go in there and jump up and down in case the whole lot fell off. <laughs> but maybe peeking but, in through the windows. <laughs> oh, yeah. But there's still sort of coffin boards lying around and stuff like wow. that. So that, that's quite exciting. And um, close to that is this this Gothic mansion. And it's absolutely enormous. Um, it was used as a family home until the early 20th century. And then it was used as a girls' school up until the 1960s. Then it was empty. And I think around about 1972, they, they gutted a lot of it, I think they took out, you know, a lot of the wood and the windows and stuff like that. With a lot of old places like that, they had to be partially demolished. Otherwise, there was all sorts of kind of tax liabilities and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a lot of places in Scotland like that, which, you know, they were a white elephant. Nobody really wants to live in them anymore. So they had to be either completely or partly demolished to avoid becoming a liability. Huh. But you've still got kind of complete rooms and um, there was one particular room that I went into, and it's, it's open to the sky, but there's still kind of two stories of masonry and these beautiful kind of Gothic windows with a lot of carving on them. And um, there's a little bit of the plaster work still visible. And because of that, I was able to identify some old, from some old photographs that this was the library. And I think that's really charming because I really felt that this room was somewhere that you would like to spend time. It gets a lot of the sun. And with these beautiful tall windows, it's very, very light. But it's also kind of curiously... I don't know, melancholy or haunting or something, mm-hmm. because there's all these plants growing up in the middle of the room. Mm-hmm. So they've got enormous weeds going up, growing up around these empty window frames. So I think that's probably the most impressive place that I've done, really. Um, I've been to other mansions of the same period, but some of them were so ruinous that you can't go in because it's not safe. Right. And some of them, there's nothing left but the foundations. But this one, you have a real sense of how grand it must have been. So, yeah, that's that's really amazing. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I was really just transported there for a moment while you were talking. I was just like, oh, I want to go visit. Well, if you ever come to Scotland, I'll be glad to show you around. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I 
I actually took some some uh, Gothic studies students around it recently because it's a Gothic revival building, and I thought, well, why not? So, yeah, <laughs> it is an amazing place. And the tower I was telling you about with the mausoleum in the bottom—the first time we ever went there, my husband and I went round the other side of it to look at it. And there's an old graveyard there, which is incredibly kind of overgrown and tangled. There used to be a church, but but that's been demolished. And we looked up at kind of the back of these ruins, and right up on the very topmost part of the masonry there was this enormous snowy white owl wow and while we were watching it saw us and it just took off and flapped away very slowly across the trees and i thought that is the most gothic thing i've ever seen in my life (laughs) couldn't have written it better yourself (laughs) exactly it was like it was waiting for us to turn up (laughs) it's like this needs to be in a story just saying (laughs) (laughs) flies away (laughs) it's sending that mental image to you yeah, but people go, this is such a cliche. <laughs> but no, it's real life, guys. You don't realize. <laughs> um, so, Helen, I'm really glad that we were able to talk to you because um, Alex had actually already started reading your stories and your books and had bought Silent Saturday when Mark Nixon, whom you worked with on Shadows at the Door anthology, was like, hey, you should have Helen on the show. It's like... Wait, we know that name. Why do we know that name? Oh, <laughs> these books. <laughs> so I don't know. It was just like, it was kind of fun, like realizing that connection that in the various things that you've already had your stories in, we've kind of like, I don't know, mentally brushed elbows already. It's like, we should just talk yeah, to her. Right. <laughs> so one of your stories that I would love to talk about is the one that was in the Shadows at the Door anthology, which was titled Watchmaker. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? It was really fun working um, on that anthology um, because you know I write quite a wide range of ghostly stuff in mm-hmm. addition to my novels. I write quite a lot of short fiction. Um, and it's ranged from stuff like The Watchmaker, the story that's, that's in that volume, which is kind of very traditional ghost story. In fact, oh, yeah. it's based on an M.R. James story and often invite people who are fans of M.R. James to guess which one it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also write kind of much more experimental stuff as well. And it's kind of fun to have that, that variation. But sometimes I like to go for the kind of the old fashioned walking dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the watchmaker was a lot of fun i i just it was it was so perfectly classic like ghost story like here's this mysterious thing and then it goes horribly wrong and maybe (laughs) if you were a good person you'd survive but maybe you won't we'll find out (laughs) it was great oh well like i said it was it was really good fun to write and um yeah I think I enjoyed writing about the artifact that kind of the, nice. that takes the, the center stage in that story. I had quite a vivid idea of that. I quite like the idea of haunted objects. I, it so. worked really, really well. <laughs> and I'm and the, you think so. the twist at the end there was just it's, it's like, oh, <laughs> that's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> so, Hel- Helen, you are in uh, Supernatural Tales 30. Do you prefer calling that an anthology or a magazine? Um. I think it's 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 more of a uh, of a magazine or journal, I would say, I mm-hmm. think. Um, yeah, and I'm very, very fond of Supernatural Tales. I think that was probably the third story I'd have published by them. Nice. And I've got another one coming out next month in Supernatural Tales 35. Um, I've got a great affection for it. I think that the fiction they have in Supernatural Tales is very varied, um, I don't think I've really read any bum stories in there either. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think David Longhorn, who edits it, has got a really good eye. Um, and there's usually kind of a good mix. And I don't feel that it's ever kind of stuck too much in a rut. You've got kind of some more traditional stuff and some more experimental stuff. Um, and 30, I wrote because it was the 30th um, issue and I wanted to do something around the theme of 30 so I chose a room that had the number 30 and then I had to work quite hard to make this room scary because you know the obviously scary number would be 13 or some other prime number Mm -hmm. Um, and that has kind of quite a traditional opening um, being set in an Oxford college um, I studied at Oxford myself many years ago so um, I think probably the details of that are fairly 
accurate um, and hopefully has kind of a sense of, of, of the atmosphere of the place. But it ends with a much more kind of existential horror. And that's mm. something that I'm enjoying writing more of nowadays, I think. Are you writing more um, of the experimental stuff in short story form? Or are you working on any novels with that in mind? More in short stories. Um probably because I get less interference with the short stories. <laughs> Every time I write a novel, then I've got to sell the idea to the agent and the publisher. Um, and I think that probably um, that market is a little bit more conservative. Mm -hmm. Whereas with um, kind of small press speculative fiction, you can be as wild as you like, really. So it's kind of my recreation in a way. I write the things that I want to write that are fancy writing. Any mad ideas that kind of come into my brain, I can express them in, in those stories. So the one that I've got coming up um, in the next Supernatural Tales is, again, although it starts with kind of a traditional setup that could almost be out of an Edwardian adventure novel or something, the kind of the horror that occurs, again, is quite a, an existential one. It's not kind of a ghost risen from the grave or anything like that. It's something uh, a bit more abstract. And, and I'm really enjoying writing those. I, I think I'm always trying to think of, of something a bit different. So it's not kind of always the always the same old, mm -hmm. some, you know, a different angle. And Supernatural Tales comes from a blog. Uh, what is the Supernatural's Tale blog for the uninitiated? Um, well, you know, I'm not sure that the magazine didn't come first, but mm. um, the Supernatural Tales blog is run by um, the editor, David Longhorn, and he puts not only details of what's up, upcoming from Supernatural Tales itself, but any kind of weird tidbits that happen to kind of take his fancy. So sometimes it's book reviews or film reviews or some kind of weird sort of Fortean stuff, anything I think that, that crosses his mind, really. <laughs> So I kind of often drop by there just to see sort of what's what's gone across his, his warped little mind recently. Nice. And how did you uh, first get involved with Supernatural Tales? Um, through, I'm trying to think what was the first story I had with them. I think it was one called The Sea Change, which was one of my earlier stories. And um, I think, in fact, I may have submitted that somewhere else for, first. And the other magazine sat on it for ages and ages and ages. So oh. then I was casting around thinking, well, what am I going to do with this story? So, um, so I submitted it to Supernatural Tales. And I like working with Dave, David because... Um, if he gives feedback, it's always tactful. You know, occasionally mm -hmm. you submit something somewhere and if it's not to their taste, they're really brutal. <laughs> he's actually quite, he's, he's honest, but he's also, you know, quite diplomatic as well. Um, and I guess he's got kind of, you know, a bit of a spirit of, uh, spirit of adventure about what he's going to publish too, which is good. So, yeah. Then all the mad things have a home. <laughs> yes, <indeed. laughs> I'm imagining what a what a place full of mad things might be like now. <laughs> I don't know. I bet it'd be interesting to explore, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So why don't you tell the audience a little about your story in Supernatural Tales simply called 30. 30. Okay. So, um, so I'm, how can I, far can I go without spoilers, I suppose? Um, basically, it's a story about an Oxford college which has um, a room in it which it is in which it is very inadvisable to spend the night and um the story follows um at the, at the beginning a baby whose name is james who um who grows up and goes from being the child of one of the academic dons to um studying at the college himself and later sort of becoming a junior member of staff and very very much later becoming the master of the college and all the time he's fascinated by this room and various kind of incidents occur in it. And he's never really quite sure what's happened to the people that, that have been in this room. Um, they have obviously experienced something, but nobody really knows what. And whenever he asks, everybody dismisses him, just saying, oh, oh there's nothing in there. Um, and throughout the story, as he kind of rises through the ranks in the college, he becomes more and more determined that one day when he has the power to do it, he's going to help himself to the key and he's going to go and spend the night in the room and find out what it is that that, that is in there. And that's what's the what the story is about. So um, there is a bit of a body count, so to speak, as you go along. But <laughs> so kind of the tension of will he or won't he ever um, manage to get in there? And actually, is this a wise thing that he's trying to do in the first place? <laughs> so... And I had a bit of fun with kind of the extraneous characters as well, like the nice. grumpy old college porter. Um, 
when they're carrying coffins out and stuff, um, he, he keeps out of the way because he, he is just too lazy to bother to help carry them and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> another body whatever <laughs> yeah exactly um so now i'm going to totally change tracks because there's something i wanted to ask you earlier on um which kind of calls back to when you were first just like those three hours a day that's all you got to write and that's where you really made your your time count since then have you built any new routines or have you built on that routine to keep yourself on track and keep yourself writing regularly um, yes, I would say that I have, because I think that those first few years when I had to be so disciplined, because, you know, if I procrastinated all morning, the kids would come home and then that was it, I'd get nothing done. So mm -hmm. I had to be really focused. And I found that that worked really well for me. And so I usually, when I'm working properly on something, so I'm not resting or kind of fiddling around with short stories or anything like that. But when I'm properly working on a novel, then I set myself quite a challenging word count for each day um, that amounts to a certain number of words a week. And I have this deal with myself that if I manage to finish early, if I've got that word count reached by Thursday, then I can have Friday off. But mm -hmm. in reality, I never do this because then I get to Friday and I think, well, if I only carried on, I'd have a head start for next week. <laughs> so, and once I get towards the end of a novel, then it just consumes everything. And then, you know, I, I want to work at the weekends as well. And I want to work in the evening. And with one of my books, Wish Me Dead, I was up at five o'clock in the morning typing the end of it because I just couldn't sleep. I just had to get it written down. That's awesome. But I tend to work in these kind of intense bursts. And typically, um, I can't work at Christmas because I'm making Christmas dinner and all the rest of it for mm -hmm. everybody else. And I always find it, it takes me a while to kind of get the engine running again after that. After a break, you know, it's hard to get back into it. So, yeah. yeah. So it tends to be, you know, I'll have two months where I work flat out and then I'll have kind of a break for a bit. And that, and that works really Yes. <laughs> I think you, you have to do that because mm -hmm. the problem is, I think, that if you think, well, I'm only going to write when I feel kind of blessed by inspiration then mm -hmm. that's never happened because there's always so many other things that need to be done oh, yeah <laughs> always yeah exactly i think i need to go grocery shopping now or you know <laughs> there's this thing on netflix i need to watch <laughs> yeah netflix mm. <laughs> so uh i see helen from your blog that you prefer blogging to speaking with your fans uh rather than using twitter yeah. Uh, hashtag what my cat just did um that was funny <laughs> i found that very humorous uh just tell us about i mean i do see you on twitter i found you on twitter mm -hmm. so yeah actually yeah actually i do like twitter quite a lot um, <laughs> uh, i can't remember what i've written in the past about it really um but um, yeah, I'm on Twitter a lot. And I, one of the things that I like about it is that it is so open and that you can follow anybody mm -hmm. and they can follow anybody and there isn't a commitment. You know, with Facebook, there's always this thing about do you friend people if you don't know them very well? Mm -hmm. If you like their page, are you going to be pestered with, you know, the thoughts of their mind every 15 minutes all day, every day? So there's this commitment there, whereas with Twitter, you can just dip in and out all the time. So I quite like that. And I like the fact that you only have 140 characters. So yes. if you've got something really complex to say, you've got to fight to squeeze it into this kind of tiny, <laughs> tiny little space. Um, so I actually do quite like Twitter. And I use my blog if I've got something longer or more complex that I want to say. And Facebook is just for kind of stupid rubbish with my friends. Pictures <laughs> and stuff like that. It seems pretty good. So, yeah. <laughs> and I'm also on Instagram as well. And, you know, kind of it's a miracle that I actually have any time left to write at all. Yeah. <laughs> do you do any of those like uh, Twitter challenges to write a story in the span of a tweet? Uh, not very often, to be honest. Um, yeah, I don't tend to do that very much. But a couple of years ago, I did um, decide that I was going to live tweet a Halloween story. And I'd taken <laughs> some photographs beforehand and stuff like this. And, and the idea was that that I was going to live tweet that I was, you know, on my iPhone walking through this lonely place and visiting this deserted house. And, and you know, I make this terrible discovery and this happens and that happens. And <laughs> unfortunately, people took it too seriously. Because oh, no. I had people tweeting me saying, oh, my God, are you all right? <laughs> 
<laughs> so I think it was, it was maybe a little bit too convincing. Wow, it's like War of the Worlds for Twitter. Nice. Yeah, I know. And it, well, hopefully nobody was actually throwing themselves off the building because the Martians were coming or anything. But... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, if I do this again, I'm going to have to make it a bit more obviously ludicrous. <laughs> like, like there are actually aliens that are dressed as cats that are something. <laughs> or like hashtag just kidding after each tweet. Yeah, something too many like characters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, but that's I, funny. I do sometimes, if I've been exploring somewhere particularly good, I'll sometimes put pictures up as kind of sort of an essay in pictures, really, because I think that's quite nice. I mean, I know Scotland particularly is a place that a lot of people have kind of a romantic ideal of. Mm-hmm. So if I do something that kind of fits that, then I quite like to. I don't know, to put that up on Twitter and Instagram, show some pictures and yeah, how great it is really. Nice. <laughs> so <laughs> since we've been talking about social media, where can people follow you? I mean, you've mentioned where, but like, what are some of your handles? All right. Okay. Well, um, I'm nearly always at Helen Grant says, S-A-Y-S, so says. Um, that's my Twitter handle. I think that's my Instagram as well. Um, I have got a Facebook page, which is just called Helen Grant books page or something or other so that's fairly easy to find um i'm on google plus as well but i don't do so much on there so i I mean if people want to ask me things or something then usually um twitter is the best place because i'm on there kind of from six o'clock in the morning till far too late at night (laughs) it's an entertaining place so you've grown to enjoy the medium yeah yeah i definitely have i'm struggling to think what it was that i said about twitter before that sounded so forbidding (laughs) it was just uh you know like there was something trending you were like hashtag um what i did before the internet and then you know just sarcastically saying that what's next is you know hashtag what my cat is doing (laughs) oh yeah 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 i do remember that yeah i suppose one of the things that i do feel is that um I mean, yeah, inside, I I don't feel very old. I think this is one of the reasons why I still write stuff from the point of view of people who are kind of 17 or 18, mm-hmm. but actually have quite lived quite a long time. Um, and to the amazement of my children, I can remember a time when, um, you know, there was no proper internet, mm-hmm. uh, where people thought that digital watches and calculators were, you know, cutting edge technology, <laughs> um, and where we had to write letters to each other. And uh, to me, one of the great marvels of life is that there's all this stuff now that wasn't there before. And that's why I have such a thrilling time with, with, uh, social media and, and other things like that, because I just can't believe how brilliant it is. <laughs> So I don't know whether that's making me sound like I'm older than God now, but yeah, it does give me the joy of life, really. (laughs) No, you don't Um, sound older than God. (laughs) I think it's weird because, um, you know, I carry my iPod around with me all over the place. uh, And I also think that, you know, that's an amazing thing because when I was a teenager, you kind of had, you know, a Walkman or something rather really primitive like that. or Or else I actually think when I was about 13, I actually had a radio on a strap that yeah. you carried around with you and now I can listen to stuff you know from that time or from even earlier I've got on my iPod I've got some classical music I've got music from the 30s and 40s and you know a time when this kind of technology was never dreamt of and I can listen to it in my head while I'm walking around the town I just find that nothing short of miraculous <laughs> so yeah anyway I'm rambling again sorry it's okay we like it <laughs> Well, well, thank you so much for coming on our show. Yeah, thank you, Helen. Oh, this was thank awesome. thank you for asking me. <laughs> that was great. So, thank you for listening to the Ninth Story Podcast. Thank you also to Helen Grant for joining us on the show. It was so amazing talking to you and just hearing more about your life and, you know, hearing, like, I mean, climbing on rooftops for book research is pretty badass. <laughs> Most definitely. So, uh, this week... We've never asked this since we've been hosts, uh, but we're going to ask it now. Now that you've gotten a chance to get to know us, if this is your first episode, welcome. If this is not your first episode, welcome back. But um, if you've been enjoying us, can you, you know, like go over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to this podcast and just like give us a rating, tell us how we're doing, tell us what you would like to hear or do not like to hear. But uh, giving us some reviews so other people can find our podcast would be amazing. Yeah, especially in iTunes. It's the most helpful of them all, apparently. It's a juggernaut of mm-hmm. of podcasting 
searchability. There you go. That so was if, totally yes. great sentence. <laughs> so if you like what you hear, yes, please go to iTunes, rate and review us. Let us know what you think and how we can make the show better or just what you like. Yeah. And that's that's just that's what we're gonna ask this week. But other than that, um, we didn't want to ask question, question of the week. week. There you go. Question of the week is there here. There it is. Once upon a time, you crawled into the dark, cavernous tunnel of something. What was it? Where did you go? That sounds like a reverse birth, like not pleasant. Ooh. I was thinking more of actually I was thinking of like crawling into a tube worm's mouth for some reason. That's that's just as bad. It is just as bad. Maybe you should come up with a question of the week. All right, let's see. Cuz mine's just going weird places apparently. Okay, so we always ask about banana stickers. I don't think that's that's going to be pertinent. No. No. All right, see question of the week. Before we explained to you what Silent Saturday meant. What did you think Silent Saturday meant? What does Silent Saturday mean to you, dear listener? Motorcycle, guy outside the window. What does it mean to you, Kai? What does it mean? What does it mean? Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. Okay, bye. Hello. Welcome to Skype Core Testing Service. After the beep, please record a message. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. Hey, we're doing a Skype test call now. Hope it's working, because otherwise we're screwed. Everything we do is through this now. Hey, we're doing a Skype test call now. Hope it's working, because otherwise we're screwed. Yeah. Everything we do is through this now. Oh, she cut me off. hear your own voice. Then you have next coming up correctly. next is the uh, ninth story podcast message, Christmas album. Your own voice, then something is wrong uh, with your audio recording um, settings. Please check your microphone and microphone settings. And your chimney, in case Santa Claus is coming down help. with a stabby knife. Okay. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. <sighs> oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.